0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose
1: thanks for watching government matters the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government i'm your host francis rose the deputy secretary of defense says her department is quote working through what the potential solutions are for the jedi cloud contract kathleen hicks tells defense one a decision should come within the next month Hicks says the department needs an enterprise cloud solution for both warfighting and back office functions. The Pentagon will test the Joint All Domain Command and Control strategy in an exercise later this year. The Chief Information Officer for the Joint Staff, Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl, says the exercise will help the department evaluate how it would survive a sustained cyber attack in wartime. Agencies are breaking records with spending on multiple award contracts. Agencies put $159 billion through MAX in fiscal 2020. Bloomberg government reports about half of that total was for IT and professional services. Surface warfare officers leave the Navy sooner and at higher rates than other officers, and women officers leave even faster than their male counterparts. Kerry Russell is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Kerry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. In your latest work, what is striking to me is these are not fine tuned numbers. There are great disparities between SWOs and other categories of officers and between women and male, uh, female and male surface warfare officers. What did you find was the reason for those disparities? Kerry, welcome.
2: Hi, thanks, Francis. Good to be here. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different reasons. In fact, one of the things that we're asking the Navy to do is evaluate its retention rates and set up a goal and a plan to deal with them, but you're absolutely right. The, uh, the, the uh, separation rates for surface warfare officers is uh, quite a bit uh, higher than what you find in other areas in the Navy, and, and as you mentioned, uh, s- certainly so within female surface warfare officers. Uh, what we found is that uh, through our statistical analyses is that female surface warfare operators are twice as likely to, uh, to separate from, uh, from their community as are their male counterparts.
1: of surface warfare officers stay in their communities uh, after around 10 years of service, you found. 45% of officers from uh, other officer communities. And the women to men is striking, too. 12% of female surface warfare officers stay in their communities compared to 39% of male surface warfare officers. You write in this work, Carrie, the career path for surface warfare officers differs from those in similar positions. How so?
2: Well, the Navy and for 100 years now, the the uh, the career path for surface warfare officers has remained uh, pretty much the same uh, again for over 100 years. Uh, And it's a generalist path. So basically uh, officers, as they go through their career, will will move around between various departments and various specialties all the way up to reaching the level ultimately uh, of, of a commanding officer. Well, as we looked at other communities within the Navy and externally foreign navies, we found that those organizations have adopted a more specialist approach and that is training officers within certain specialties they may in some cases start out as journalists but eventually become specialists uh, and so that would be uh, specializing in such departments as maybe engineering or um, uh, ship operations or weapon systems or things along that along that line
1: my other big takeaway from your work this time around Kerry, is that the surface warfare officers themselves seem to understand the point that you just made. You write, GAO found by a factor of four to one, surface warfare officers believe specialized career paths would better prepare them for their duties than the current generalist career path. How'd you go about doing that work, Kerry? Well,
2: we uh, conducted a web-based generalizable survey of, of, of hundreds of, of naval surface warfare officers, and we asked them a number of questions along those lines. And what we found, just as you pointed out, 65 percent of the respondents said they preferred and felt a uh, specialist path was better. Um, and, and another thing that we learned from that survey is uh, that you know, while the goal, according to Navy leadership, of the generalist path is to prepare, they feel better prepare uh, officers for that commanding officer position. Only 22% of the uh, respondents that in the survey said that they were indeed looking for the commanding officer position as part of their career. Uh, the re- remaining either were unsure whether they wanted to be commanding officers and some flat out didn't want to be commanding officers. So that does definitely uh, raise questions as to whether or not the generalist path is indeed the best one.
1: You write in this work, Kerry, by using existing information to develop a plan to improve retention, the Navy will be better positioned to retain a diverse and combat-ready community. What information does the Navy have now that maybe it's not using to its fullest potential?
2: Well, there's a couple things. One thing is they do have the rates, just as we analyzed on retention. Um, but one thing they're not doing is using that in order to build a plan, and that would mean goals and, and objectives for what they expect and want their uh, retention rates to be, and then come up with a way to measure progress towards that. So as they uh, undergo initiatives like retention bonuses, is one thing they've done, be able to go back and track that back towards progress. And the Navy has, while they have examined to some degree, looking for incentives and, and ways to, uh, to improve the retention rates for surface warfare officers as a whole, it really hasn't looked at subsets such as female surface warfare officers. So it's equally important that they come up with a retention plan for that segment as well so that they can identify key drivers that might be causing uh, a, a loss of retention and be able to, to track initiatives to, to
1: improve that. Um, You suggest periodic evaluations, you write, of current approaches. Do you have a suggestion about or a recommendation about how periodic they should be or just that they should happen on an ongoing basis?
2: They should really happen on an ongoing basis. It's up to the Navy to determine the appropriateness. But again, since it's been 100 years, really, since any real comprehensive analysis has been done, given some of the challenge that the Navy faces with with retention uh, and certainly with the survey results that we just talked about, it it, it says that there's an opportunity to just relook things and see if that is still the best career path for today's Navy. And as we said, one thing that that can be done is comparing other alternatives. particularly the specialist path that that seems to be in place everywhere else but the U.S. Service Navy.
1: We have about a minute to go, Kerry, and you've mentioned several of your recommendations already. Seven in total in this work. Is there one or a couple of those that stand out as fairly uh, easy or really important for the Navy to undertake?
2: Yeah, I think there's two key ones, which get along to what we were talking about. One is to come up with that retention plan so they can manage retention and get it to an acceptable level. The second is the overall assessment of the entire uh, surface warfare officer career path, to assess that generalist um, um, path to see if it still makes sense. I think there's some evaluation that can be done, and then to the extent that those show a need, then to take action to actually implement change to create a better career path, should the analysis show that that's needed.
1: Carrie Russell, the Government Accountability Office, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Francis. Appreciate
1: it. You can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv resources. Coming next, a landmark for the Defense Department's cyber setup. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the first ever assessor gets ready to get to work. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program has its first third party assessor. Redspin will be the first company other companies can use to verify their compliance with CMMC standards. Bob Bigman's founder of 2B Secure. He's former Chief Information Security Officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bob, welcome. It's great to see you. What do you take away from the naming of the first uh, third party assessor for CMMC?
3: Uh, long uh, first step on a long, long path, um, and I, it's a it's a great step. I'm I'm glad they did it, but boy, I tell you, you know, um, I think I read there's three hundred thousand contractors to do in this program. Uh, not all of them are working at level risk uh, at three, four, and five, but still, you know, this is this is going to take a long, a long way, a long time to do. Uh, I, I think they might
1: want to think of different ways to to see how they can uh, ensure compliance. I, I, the first step on a long journey, yes. How long of a journey? At what point does the cohort of uh, three PAOs look big enough to you to be able to get to everybody?
3: Yeah, I, I you know, I, again, we haven't seen anyone actually do these audits yet. And uh, especially in the higher level ones, three, four, and five, it, it's gonna take obviously more time and you need more tools. Uh So the true answer is we don't yet, know how long one's going to take until you actually do one or do two or three. But I'll I'll be honest with you. I I mean, I've done hundreds of cybersecurity audits. They actually take a long, long time. And if you look at what's required at the higher levels, it's a lot of detailed analytics that need to be done and a lot of actual testing needs to be performed. You know, this is is a 10 to 15 year
1: uh, endeavor. 10 to 15 years to get the entire Everywhere. to get the entire industrial base uh, under the uh, under the scope of this. Is that what you mean? That's my that's that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. And and just because of the nature of the volume of the defense industrial base, just because of the uh, amount of work that each uh, organization will have to do wh- or all of the above yeah. or something all, all, else. All, yeah. All of the above. Mostly it's, it's the, again,
3: 300,000 contractors. Right. Um, who need to be uh, assessed at some level independently. Um, you know, just that alone, even if you were doing it at the lower levels, you know it's probably five years to do. But even now considering at the higher levels where you have much more detailed and uh, precise standards of, of measurement for security, uh, you know I, I, I think it's going to take a lot longer. Now, it also we also have to figure out, you know, how many vendors, how many contractors are going to have to do this work? Uh, hopefully, the, the more you have, uh, you know, obviously, the less time it will take. But I, I can't see that, you know, that within the next couple of years, you're going to need to at least have, you know, 25 to 50 companies under contract. I, I, I don't see that happening that quickly.
1: The former EGov administrator, Karen Evans, was on the program last week talking about FSMA and the frustration that exists with FISMA as basically a box checking exercise where someone is not necessarily – Sure, after their FISMA compliance is complete that they're more secure than they were when it started. What would you like to see the CMMC board do to make sure that this doesn't become a compliance exercise, that this becomes an actual ascertainment of cybersecurity achievement or not?
3: Yeah, great question. So, you know, I and you've heard me say this before, there are a number of things we know work in stopping hacking, right? Or make it much more difficult. You know, there are some strong security measures that uh, beyond just hygiene, you know, uh, strong protection measures for endpoints, standards for hardening systems, cryptography standards. You know, there's some very good things that we know to do. What What I would really like to see is these standards and even the FISMA standard, you know, evolve to a point where we focus on those things that make the, the job of, uh, of penetration of, of government systems much, much more difficult. And the second thing I'd like to see them do is do like they uh, do in some other countries um, where they actually automate the compliance uh, test. And uh, the, the government or government contractors who are awarded this you know, actually have tools to not just go in and do it once, but go and be able to do uh, multiple iterative uh, assessments of these contractors to determine whether or not, you know, their GPO settings are set right in their Windows environment. You know, they've got hardware security configured properly, you know, that they're doing the right things on an ongoing uh, ongoing
1: basis. You said the word evolve as far as these standards and then explained a little bit the uh, answer to the question that I'm about to ask, so you can expound on it a little bit more, Bob, and that is if these standards evolve and my company's good today, how do I know I'm still good a year from now or two years from now? And more importantly, how does the department know that I'm good a year from now or two years from now? Yeah, and that's the problem, right? You know, we've had various attempts
3: uh, continuous uh, management, continuous metrics, continuous defense in an attempt to basically resolve this issue. This is one of the big tests in cybersecurity is how do I ensure the integrity and validity of my controls on an ongoing basis? Uh, we don't do it well. What, again, what I, I, I think works best is, and it's not a perfect answer, but, you know, frankly, is automated compliance of standards. And we're getting towards that. Uh, The good news is we're getting towards that with some of the tools available in cloud and containerized based security uh, capabilities. But the only way we're gonna ensure this is to basically use automation, uh, in this case, in support of security uh, and allow us to have the ability to, as I said, iteratively and using systems, completely consistently test all these settings across all these different contractors and to find those who basically are out of compliance and pose the highest risk. That That's frankly the only
1: way I can see this actually working. Bob Bigman, thanks very much as always, my friend. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Coming next, doubling small business contracts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the White House's equity plan for vendors. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Biden administration will aim for doubling the contracts for small and disadvantaged businesses. A fact sheet from the White House says only about 10 percent of federal contracts go to small disadvantaged businesses. Liza Craig is counsel at Reed Smith Global Regulatory Enforcement Group. Liza, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's your takeaway from the fact sheet, what companies will have to do and what agencies should pay attention to as they're starting to look to award these contracts?
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, really, there's there's quite a bit here to unpack. You know, um, the you know this this pronouncement from the Biden administration uh, really came on the centennial of the Tulsa Tulsa race massacre, and really this is all about narrowing that racial wealth gap and reinvesting in these underserved and marginalized communities. Uh, Agencies are absolutely going to have to redouble their effort, focus on coordination so that they can roll out these programs that the Biden administration really wants to see that's going to pour this money into these communities. And contractors, businesses that want to take advantage, they're going to have to stay tuned as these programs get up and running so that they know how to apply, how to get access to this money, and really how to take advantage of what's coming down the
1: pipe. Do you expect? Oh, excuse me. Do you expect that agencies will have to change the way that they evaluate companies, um, and, and will companies have to change the way that they uh, try to uh, demonstrate that they qualify for these contracts?
4: Yeah, no, I don't expect changes in that particular area. I mean, really, I think what President Biden is trying to do is say we're putting more money and more focus on getting companies that already qualify and that already are characterized as small, as marginalized, as from these disadvantaged communities. They they really want to get them access. The Small Business Administration, as well as other organizations, really have pretty solid criteria set forth with what, characterizes a business and allows it to qualify as small or underrepresented. So those we don't expect those um, parameters to really change. This is really about infusing that capital and getting those businesses already designated as such. Access
1: to that money. Uh, I read this from the fact sheet. Uh, Agencies will assess every available tool to lower barriers to entry and increase opportunities for small businesses and traditionally underserved entrepreneurs to compete for federal contracts. What I, if I read between the lines, and please correct me if I'm wrong, counselor, what I don't see is. And any uh, impetus on any agencies to try to create new things, they're just supposed to evaluate what they already have and maximize what they already have. Am I reading that right?
4: I think you're right. But I think that, you know, this is, this is a space where we may anticipate some sort of creativity. So absolutely, I think that the Biden administration is really calling upon agencies to take a look at their goaling programs, take a look at their community outreach programs, take a look at the requirements generators within their organizations. And to the extent that they uh, perhaps see opportunities for um, contracts and opportunities to be set aside for small businesses, for disadvantaged businesses, make sure they're taking advantage of all of those opportunities. However, if during this analysis and this evaluation, uh, new ideas um, come come to the surface, innovation spurs new ways to open opportunities to these businesses, I certainly think the administration would be open to that and would encourage that.
1: As I read this fact sheet, it struck me that the, what I saw explicitly applied to prime contractors. Is there something maybe implicit here on primes that are not um uh, disadvantaged businesses that are not small businesses to be more aggressive in uh, reaching out to those companies potentially as subs?
4: Yeah, well, absolutely. So we, we are talking about prime contracts here. And of course, that's the focus of, of, of this push with the fact sheet and what President Biden is doing. But remember that already many federal prime contracts contain small business requirements, contain small business subcontracting plans that actually encourage businesses, large prime contract businesses um, to engage with small, disadvantaged, and minority-owned uh, entities uh, for everything from preference points during the solicitation process and also to help agencies meet their goaling requirements during contract performance. So, absolutely, prime businesses are going to continue to be incentivized to work with small businesses going forward.
1: Would you expect, maybe Liza, to see something along the lines of this fact sheet that pertains to primes and the way they work with subs at some point in the future?
4: Uh, I think it's possible. I think it's possible when we get get, get a little bit further down the, the line. But as you know, the, the federal government has privity with its primes and usually takes a step back and allows its primes to deal directly with its subs as they so choose. So while I, I think that the federal government can direct and encourage things at the prime contract level, they really are going to um, stand back and allow the process to continue to work. But, but we should certainly expect to see uh, th- this excitement about engaging on this level flow all the way down through the supply chain.
1: What would you watch as implementation of this uh, order moves throughout the agencies and moves throughout the industrial base?
4: Yeah, I think that we need to continue to watch for um, policy. We need to continue to watch for um, uh, statements coming out of organizations like the Small Business Administration. You know, they really are the federal administration that is tasked with uh, taking on uh, challenges to really support small businesses of all sorts. So we should continue to watch for uh, statements from that agency about programs that are coming online, about reinvigorization of programs. That already exists and, and folks that are um, in line to receive these awards and take advantage of these uh, contracts really need to stay plugged in so they can know where these opportunities are and make sure that they're in the best position to take advantage of them.
1: Liza well, Craig, thanks very much. It's great to have you on the program.
4: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Every episode of Government Matters is online at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
5: offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to
1: go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, If you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
5: Well, I think I think the idea here is to if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry that you're asking for the right kind of services if you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to